I feel like you missed a calling as as a lawyer. You 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 had excellent. You really, you got me you got me close on a bunch of these things. You really did. I mean, you really had you got me leaning all over the place. And I I am I'll tell you what I'm taking a victory lap by not okay. not giving out too many headlines. That's because you you're good at this. Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, it's a Last of Us spoiler spectacular with writer and showrunner Craig Mazin. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz and welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Now usually I would launch right into the conversation with Craig, but I want to give one very tiny preamble just for context. We taped this conversation a while back. Uh, prior to the writer's strike. There's nothing dated in here, but I just want, uh, you know, people very sensitive to folks doing press and, and stuff, like, uh, stuff like that right now in the wake of the strike. This, to be very clear, done way prior to the strike even happening. Um, but, uh, you know, the time is now. Emmy season is afoot, and we are talking about The Last of Us because, damn it, it deserves it. I was obsessed with this show, you were obsessed with this show, and you're about to watch and listen to a, um, a deep dive, really uh, fantastic chat with a super talented uh, writer of uh, Hangover Films to Chernobyl to, yes, The Last of Us. Some sneak peeks at future seasons of The Last of Us. Uh, you guys are going to love this one. So remember to do all the things, like and subscribe, spread the good word of happy, sad, confused. And uh, I'm going to toss to myself, introducing Mr. Craig Mason. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, a man. We've got a great one for you guys today. Like many of you, I fell very hard for The Last of Us series. Well, we've got the man with all the answers, Craig Mason, writer, showrunner, executive producer, keeper of all the secrets, and Craig has agreed to spill it all today. Thank you for that in advance, Craig. Absolutely. I will tell you everything. I promise to answer every question. I don't, I just don't care. I don't. <laughs> it's over. You know, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. <laughs> uh, guys, remember to hit the like and subscribe so you don't miss conversations like this one with the one and only Mr. Craig Mason. Uh, Craig, an official welcome to Happy Sad Confused. I'm, I've long been a fan of your work, and congratulations on this amazing achievement. The Last of Us uh, is something to... I hope you're taking a little bit of a victory lap in between work. I don't know about you, but I do not take victory laps. Uh, I don't even take victory crawls. I... <laughs> I'm, I mostly feel uh, some relief, uh, whatever the, you know, lack of humiliation. I experience whatever that emotion is. Right. Um, but it's, so that, this one was, was actually quite overwhelming, to be honest with you. I was not prepared for how it all went down. How much of this looks so – we'll, we'll, we'll try to get into some of the background resume, too, in the course of this conversation. But this comes off of Chernobyl, which obviously is this phenomenal success for you. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's the first show you actually show ran. Um, and that's a major shift. And and it, this, that in its, of itself was a major shift for you off of a career that was mostly built on comedy, uh, big screen comedy. Um, how much of this opportunity was kind of like – kind of cashing in the chips. Like I, I have the success of Chernobyl and I have an opportunity now to really take a big swing with something like The Last of Us. Well, I, I think that's probably right in the sense that um, 
Casey Blois, who runs HBO, had said to me, look, we want to do what you want to do. What do you want to do? But it has to be like want. You have to be in love. You have to be levitating, that excited about it. And 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 then this happened. I mean, The Last of Us became available as a possibility. And uh, I, I levitated. And, you know, I think this one was maybe less about cashing and chips. Look, I came to them with something that was based on a very popular source material. And it was a genre show that theoretically a lot of people would want to watch. I mean, the chips were probably more on Chernobyl. No, that's true. That's a, that's a big swing. Like, wait, wait people are actually going to watch a show right. called Chernobyl? Right. Nobody <laughs> thought anyone was going to watch that. That was very much that's a, fair. a public yeah. service event. And it turned out to be something that people watched. And that was, we were all grateful for that. This was always meant to be a little bit more of a mass audience show, but I don't think anybody expected the audience to be quite as mass as yeah. it was. So talk to me about, okay, the initial conversations, as you say, this is something with a huge fan base, something that I, I gather you were already very familiar with as a gamer. Um, did you did you know your way in immediately? Did you like, how, how long do you spend before kind of crafting your take, your pitch? And what is kind of the, the elevator pitch on your take on, on The Last of Us? Well, the the pitch was really mostly me walking HBO through the basic story that was there. Um, there are all of these embellishments, detours, um, differentiations that occur when you're adapting. And we certainly, you know, engaged in lots of those. There are lots of things in the show that weren't in the game. There are lots of things in the show that were, but aren't quite that way. Um, but mostly, I think the pitch was, look, here's the basic story of Joel and Ellie, and this is why it matters. This is why it's important. And this is why tens of millions of people feel so strongly about it, so strongly that they tattoo it on their bodies. And that was enough for HBO to say, okay, we're, we're very interested now, give us the full run of it. And so Neil and I just talked for weeks about how we wanted to tell the story where the, I mean, the first question is, what are the episodes? Where do they start? Where do they finish? That's kind of the first thing we do. And then we talk about the different things that could be inside of it to you know, help bring it to life. And all of that went into a very large document. I think it was like 163 pages or something like that, that just spelled out the whole damn thing. And then we wrote the first script and that was enough. That was, <laughs> that was enough to get it going. And, and from there, we just kept going. Were, were you surprised? Look, obviously you mentioned Neil Druckmann, who's obviously a, a hugely important collaborator on this in terms of Neil's openness to, Look, it's a very faithful adaptation, but as you say, there are also the necessary uh, changes that you make. Was Neil open about that from the beginning, like open to your ideas on how to make this work for television? Yeah, I mean, we were both, I think, a little nervous um, yeah. because I, like after a career of being a little bit of a midwife or perhaps a second-class citizen in certain cases and features where then really matter how good of a screenwriter you are, somebody else is going to then, you know, make decisions and do what right. they do. Um, I had had this taste of authority on Chernobyl that was um, 
exhilarating, not because I'm an authoritarian, far from it, but I was able to interpret my own work for the first time. Right. And it felt great. Um, I was able to protect it the way I wanted it to, and I was able to make sure that the little things that were important didn't get lost. So in talking with Neil early on, I think we were both nervous. He was nervous that, you know, somebody else was going to be reinterpreting and reimagining this thing that meant so much to him. And that was really, you know, his magnum opus. And I was nervous that there was going to be a source material author kind of there. And I think what we both found very early on to our commingled joy, uh, we were okay. We were good collaborators. We were good partners. Yeah. You know, he uh, was completely open to not only the specifics of adaptation, but the philosophy of adaptation, which is you have to change it, right? It's just simply a different medium. You're, you want to take advantage of the things that we can do, you can't do in gaming. And similarly, I was just, you know, I think he was particularly pleased that I was so devoted to the game and I understood it so thoroughly and had, I think, matching instincts with him about where we ought to be pretty close and where it would actually be better for us to deviate, but all in service of the spirit of that story and those characters. So it was a great partnership. It continues to be a great partnership. So, so speaking of the things you can and can't do in a game versus television, like so much of the game's success and i think why people really connect with it is it it you you are as a gamer often complicit with questionable moral choices of these characters in a game you're in their shoes you're feeling what they're feeling um mm -hmm. how do you accomplish that in television in a film in a, in a narrative i will say perhaps somewhat controversially that it is easier to do in television because you would think that being the person that presses the button will make you feel more morally complicit. But there is an interesting thing that happens there. There's, it's like a, you are aware that you are doing it, but you're not really doing it because you don't have a choice. And so the complicity is a little bit artificial and almost because it's so overt it has a slight, I think it may, it doesn't surprise you as the way it does when you're watching. So the, the thing I always think about is this wonderful episode of The Sopranos where uh, Carmela goes to see her own therapist to complain about her life and her mobster husband. And her therapist says, uh, get out. Get out and get as far away from him as you can because every day you live with him and take his money and live in that world that he provides, you are profiting off of other people's blood. And I remember, that's a paraphrase, that's not exactly, I'm sure. <laughs> it was much better the way he said it, <laughs> but that was my paraphrasing. But what I remember as a viewer going, oh shit, I've been doing that too. I, I love Tony, <laughs> I get excited when he wins why why am i so invested in the success of this bad person it was the same thing that happened with breaking bad in fact right i remember you know talking with vince gilligan who's you know 
if you write television, then I assure you Vince Gilligan is your hero. And saying how it was, it was so disheartening to see how much anger people sent towards Anna Gunn, who was so brilliant as Skyler. Yeah. Because she was the person saying the thing that basically was supposed to end the show, which is stop being a terrible person. And we want the show to keep going. Um, so we, as viewers, we begin to root for people. And I would argue that that complicity is a choice. That is something that we do that we don't have to do. So when you do get to those moments where these characters that you root for do things that are objectively bad, whether it's Ellie or Joel or anyone, Kathleen, anyone in the story. I mean, Henry, you know, says to Joel, I'm the bad guy. And he's right. He did a bad guy thing. That's what he says. But we root for him anyway. And to me, that's where we actually, I think, create more complicity uh, and whatever you would call it. Uh, what's the word? Um, I don't know. More complicity right. um, than and, in video games. And, and so... Again, by that logic, like Joel's, and needless to say, spoiler alert for all of this conversation, but by the end of the season, Joel's kind of rampage. Yeah. There's no, by then, there's less of a concern because by then we have kind of bought in. We've, we've gone on the journey with him and we are supporting him by loving the character and, and, and wanting him to succeed. Well, we root for violent people to do violent things when we, approve of their goals and uh i think a lot of people and this is a great debate that has been going on since the game came out and it's why it's such a terrific ending um a lot of people feel strongly that joel does what they would do that if it were their child in that position they would do the same thing and a lot of parents in particular feel that way which is understandable because um when you have a child, the the profundity of the irrationality of your connection to them cannot be overstated. Right. Um, so yes, he gets to this place and does something that is pretty shocking and terrifying to some extent. And I suspect most people were saying, good. <laughs> um, yeah. And what Neil uh, has always been great at is forcing people to confront that feeling and then interrogate it and question it until they don't feel quite so clean about it. And that's something that we endeavor to do as well. That's funny. I was just talking to somebody else about, uh, it reminds me of a, one of a classic moment in film of the, of the end of Unforgiven, the William Money sequence where he goes off like a badass and you kind of like, feel a catharsis like seeing clint do what clint does best and yet if you take a second to think about it this is horrible what you're saying well, i mean we we talked about unforgiven all the time it's something that neil thought about when he was making the game it's something yeah. we were thinking about when we did this so david webb peoples wrote this script that i think did the, the this brilliant thing of of taking a man that was the devil by reputation but in front of us was just broken down old guy who couldn't even get on a horse well he couldn't feed his pigs he was tired he was old and uh 
And when it came time for him to fight back, he got his ass kicked so hard that he almost died. And then it was the loss of a friend, this thing that snaps in him that releases the devil just when you want the devil to be released. And that's something that we, we can't help but feel excited about because all of us, I think, have a this love and fear relationship with father, whoever father is, actual father, father figure, some guy in the sky. What we want is for that father to punish the people we do not like. And when they punish them, they punish them with severity and they are unstoppable. And we get very excited about this, but we're also terrified of them because of the things they can do to us. So most of Western religion seems to be based on being uh, alternatively uh, terrified of and loving for this father figure who uh, is endlessly merciful, but also will put you in a lake of fire forever. Uh, or who occasionally just drowns everyone <laughs> or, or just gently eliminates babies to make a point. Um, and we are, the, it's not like those stories made us like this. We are like this, and thus we made these stories. We all have this, this desire for my dad to beat up your dad. And Pedro Pascal is uh, quite the father figure in that regard. And Joel is not only a father, but he's a broken father who is seeking to figure out why he's there, his entire purpose, as it turns out is to be the father that protects his child. And the failure of his life is now about to be redeemed through violence. You can see why I wanted to write this story for television. <laughs> <laughs> Some rich, rich material, yes, to say the least. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, you, met, you, you, you mentioned Pedro. I want to talk about the cast a little bit. Um, the nature of the business is uh, we often hear about other actors in the mix. And look, no one's going to quarrel with Pedro. He's amazing. But how different yeah. is this show with Matthew McConaughey? with Mahershala Ali. Did you have significant conversations with those, with those guys? Um, I actually never talked to Mahershala. Um, I did talk to Matthew. I can't say that it was like a series, it was more of like a, hey, here's something to talk about. Right. Initially, you know, Pedro was on our list from the start. We were told that he was unavailable. And then as we were kind of floundering about a little bit, um, I got a call from his agent who said, you know, he actually might be available. And I was like, uh. and I sent a, a script off. And, you know, normally when you send scripts to actors like this, you're lucky if you get a read in, within a month. Right. Um, and he was in uh, England at the time working on a movie. So I thought, ah, between the movie and the time chain, this will be forever. And I sent it on a Friday. Saturday morning, I get a call. He loves it. He wants to get on a Zoom. Well, okay. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> good sign. <laughs> that's a pretty good sign. And then we got on a Zoom and had what I think maybe the most wonderful Zoom I've ever had. I mean, just like, just love at first sight. And he was so immediately insightful about it. And, and every time I look, I'm an honest person. I was like, listen, it's going to be Calgary for like a year. And he's like, hello, Calgary. <laughs> okay. 
and it's going to be some cold and it's going to be no great love it okay i mean just he was so taken with the scripts and i you know it's one of those things where i don't know yeah i'm sure there's an alternate universe where it's a different guy and look matthew mcconaughey is an amazing actor i'm sure it would have been great but it would have been different and yeah. i like the one that we made so what can i say i think it worked <laughs> out well I think yeah. so. Yeah. Matthew's doing okay too. Everyone's happy. Um, I'm thrilled to tell you guys about our sponsor this week on Happy, Sad, Confused. It's HelloFresh. You know HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip the trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's, of course, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh is more convenient than grocery shopping, but did you know it's also cheaper? It's also 25% less expensive than takeout, and that is huge for me because I spend way too much eating out and spending money on takeout. Plus, it's your recipe for success. From foolproof instructions to high-quality proteins and veggies, HelloFresh brings out your inner chef with every tasty, easy-to-prepare meal. Guys, we recently, this is this is a standout meal. We had some beef flautas. I have never made a flauta in my life. So if I can do it, if we can do it, and it's delicious and the price is right, what are you doing? HelloFresh is there for you. This summer, spend less time meal planning and prepping with HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients that make it easy to get cooking quick. Go to HelloFresh.com slash HSC. 16 and use the code HSC16 HSC16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's hellofresh.com/hsc16 and use that code HSC16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. I had the privilege of having Bella on this podcast a couple months ago. She was fantastic. I'm such a fan of hers. And um, what Bella does with this role is extraordinary. And I'm curious, when you cast Bella, were you casting for both season one and potentially season two, Ellie? Or were you? Yeah. You, 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 you knew this was the person that would have to embody both sides. You're equally thinking of that they can, they can yes. get through that change. Yes. Because what we we had the benefit of both storylines, whereas when Neil made the first game, he didn't. And so we were aware that at least where, you know, how her character's uh, evolution goes, there were certain things we were looking for. It wasn't pre it wasn't anything prescriptive, but Neil and I felt that we needed to find a an actor who was, first of all, a convincing 14 year old. Um, and who was funny and who was smart and who was a pain in the ass and who was also somebody that you would want to kill everyone to keep alive. And, uh, and also someone who was a little scary, who had the potential to be very dangerous. And that, all of that is a lot. And that is probably why we saw over a hundred auditions. But when Bellas came through, it was just, it was up, it was done. It was just, it was done. I didn't know, you know, it's funny when I saw her audition, I was like, oh, it's Lady Mormont. I didn't even know Lady Mormont's name. I just, she was just Lady Mormont to me, you know? Right. And I love Lady Mormont. I was like a huge Lady Mormont fan. And I'm constantly making Bella do the scene with me. 
Um, the first Lady Mormont seems the greatest, although occasionally <laughs> in the other one where she's like, you refuse the cult. So uh, so I was like, okay, Lady Mormont, cool. I'll watch. And then I was like, I watched it and I'm like, we're done. <laughs> we got it. That's it. That's it. We got it. And And then the gift beyond that, two gifts beyond that. One was that her chemistry with Pedro was immediate and beautiful and you couldn't ask for more of a connection between two actors. Yeah. And also she is maybe the best person ever. <laughs> She's, she is wise and kind and smart and thoughtful and caring. All of, all of her negativity is pointing inward, which is exactly like how my negativity works, which means we all the best people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She's never, never, it's never your fault. It's always, and so we help each other. Yeah. Um, She is vulnerable. um, But uh, as, as an actor, she is also, she is approaching infallible as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you're salivating like I am at just seeing what she can do with the Ellie we find in season two, because that's, I think she could do anything and we, we will write things for her to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So a a couple of the, the, the fan theories, the questions out there, uh, what do we make of the flower theory that's spread? That's spot on. And I, you know what? Thumbs up to the internet. I mean, they, they got it sooner than I thought they would. They got it before the reveal. For for the, for the record, according to this, I think emerged on Reddit that the show's virus actually spread through flower, it, which is a fact. Um, I mean, within the show, that's canon for our show. That there are there are these massive uh, flower mills um, in Indonesia that do distribute flour all around. Now we made it a little, we stretched a little bit in the sense that the flour then was like sent everywhere and then put into everything and that at least a portion of that stuff is not baked enough to kill some of the cordyceps that had infected it and that once it got into some people and they started biting the fungus spreads because i was i was interested in how it began you know i was talking to neil about you know the specifics and that was something that now, in the, in the Middle Ages, there was this disease called ergotism, which was basically from the ergot fungus that would grow in flour, typically, and wheat and rye. And and ergot is the, well, it's the forerunner of, of LSD. That's the, the compounds in ergot are where ultimately LSD is like a synthetic ergot compound. So... It seemed like a good idea. Um, it made sense. It made sense that because why did it happen all at once? You know, right. I like right. the idea that it was sort of like this wave of products sort of land on shelves around this time. People eat it. Some of them eat enough of it to have it make its way in, and then that's when it all goes down. It's just sort of that's that's the scary part of epidemiology. Um, so yes. That was true, uh, and people got it. They got it from the fact that there weren't, there wasn't pancake mix in the morning. That Joel didn't bring a cake home. That Nana is eating biscuits. <laughs> Joel is on Atkins. 
and they picked it up all for I didn't think that must gonna... be that must be so thrilling for you as a writer that's kind of like you feel like you're being oh I'm being really subtle I'm like yeah I'm just, these are breadcrumbs and that they are just so into it in it that they see it all it was it was like Frank says later paying attention to things is how we show love I was like okay this is love. If you are paying that close attention, and it was also fun to then have other people yelling at those people, like you're an idiot or whatever. And then, and then like, the actually, episode three, Joel just spells it all out. <laughs> you know, well, even in the beginning of episode two, um, uh, Eva Ratna sort of, you know, there it is. It's like it was a flower factory. Um, right. Okay. So have we already seen Abby? Has Abby, was Abby the one running away from the hospital when Joel was shooting? I can confirm that she was not. Okay. Uh, that was, um, just one of the fireflies that happened to have a, a ponytail. <laughs> Other people have ponytails. So <laughs> no, that, that was, that was not Abby. Yeah. You mentioned early on in our conversation that like you kind of had, whether a specific list or in your own head, just like, these are, these are scenes, these are moments that you feel I, I I'm good. We're going to need to be pretty slavish to in the game. And these are places where we can diverge. Did anything swap in the, in the course of the writer's room of putting it together that you were surprised that like, oh, this initially was absolutely going to be slavish and became the other or vice versa? I mean, it's not really much of a writer's room. It's just me and Neil talking. That's, <laughs> that's, that's it. Okay. Uh, that's the writer's room. <laughs> two of us talking. And then uh, I'm over here going clack, clack, clack. And he's over Got there it. going. Um, but no, um, we just kind of knew. I, I think every now and again, I was weirdly i was probably the one that was a little bit more like hey i just feel like as a fan i don't want to fuck with this part i don't know if i'm allowed to use bad language on this you're podcast fine. you're fine you're Fantastic. fine um so but most of the time i think we were just in full agreement like look there are things we know we're going to do you know i like it was important to me to have sarah give joel the watch on sitting there on that couch. It was important to me to see how she dies in his arms and for her death to be the way it was in the game. It was important for me to see little things like Ellie crossing in front of Joel and saying, your watch is broken all the way to important things. Like when she confronts him in that bedroom in Jackson um, and tells him, you know, I'm not, I'm not her, you know, giraffes these things are important if i if i were a fan i i feel like basically i did what i would have wanted right and then i messed around with stuff that i would be okay with messing around with. that's basically how it worked out and i think neil and i agreed on those points every step of the way so so major spoiler alert going into season two game two we're, we're facing a lot of major events but none more so than the death of joel of course does that fit under the category of slavish interpretation or does that feel like something that um, you can diverge from? I mean, I can't tell you anything about that season. Joel dies. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying a goddamn thing. Uh, people will have to wonder. Um, and you know what? Good. Because here's the thing. First of all, I... Anytime you're making, anytime you're adapting something where there's source material, there's certainly an expectation that the, the adaptation will hit the main source material points. And that is mostly what happens. But the way they happen, I think, is what matters. How they happen, when they happen, the way they happen, those are the things that matter. Um, 
it's why I started Chernobyl with Chernobyl exploding. I was like, I'm not going to make you wait and wonder if it's going to explode. Um, so look, when it comes to the fate of characters, no matter who they are, all I can say is we will do what we want to do that in a way that is best for the show that we're making. And we will always be thinking about, I think, the two perspectives that we have, which is Neil's perspective as a creator and my perspective as a fan. And, and yeah. Has that decision, whatever it is, in terms of how to treat that event, however you're going to do it, has that been in kind of in stone for a while? Like, can Because I would imagine, cynically speaking, a power that B might say, you, your biggest star, you can't kill Pedro in episode three of season two. Like, can are there influences at play or do you have creative, do you feel like you have full creative freedom to do what serves this story best? Yeah, again, I'm not going to even say, I, I don't want to, okay. I, I question your premise. <laughs> okay. okay. I question okay. your premise. Okay. Here's the thing, honestly, I, yeah, look, look, I'll answer this question. We know exactly what we're doing. I'll okay. say that. We know exactly what we're going to do, but I question your premise okay. because everyone presumes that we're going to do things and, and they shouldn't. Um, that's not to it's so this is a I can neither confirm nor deny anything that you're saying. I'm gonna I, res I respect that. It's all good. <laughs> because that because because the articles that will be written uh should the headline should be uh showrunner can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> what a juicy headline you're giving me. Exactly. No, I get it. I get it totally. I've been in this game a while. I know you're too smart for me. What? Uh, where are you though? Though in the in the process of writing, are you? Have you broken story? Have you started writing scripts? Are you? We we know what we're doing. We have the the next season laid out, and we are writing scripts. And you know, while we're writing scripts, we're also um, beginning quite a bit in parallel. You know, one of the things we these shows are enormous to produce. I, I, I call them aircraft carriers. They're just yeah. massive. So what we do, even as, you know, I'm sitting here working on writing episode, the episode I'm writing on, I won't even say which one. <laughs> um, we still at the same time need to deal with a lot of just practical. So we've already started the scouting process where you start talking about how to, you know, build certain locations and where and how we're going to achieve these things. Casting has that process is beginning. Um, and so we have to do a lot in parallel. But this time, you know, most of what this year is for me, even as we do all these other things to ramp up towards shooting, is writing. Um, everything that we do reverts back to the script. The script is the thing that that we all consult everybody every day, every day, every, whether it's in prep or shooting or even post in post, we're constantly looking back at the script. Well, Hey, remember what it was supposed to be? Why don't we do that? Right. <laughs> so, so, and, so, and the right. nature of the scale is like, once you're in production, you don't want to be catching up on scripts and like you want, you want them as close to. Yeah. I mean, so during season one, what I was doing is I was writing I was still writing while we were shooting. I was writing oh, wow. because yeah. we were we were shooting over the course of a, basically a calendar year. Right. Uh, I'm trying to avoid that this time because that was not good for my uh, mental health. Um, and I am uh, one of those weirdos that just I like to write it 
I don't, I don't, I don't have a room. <laughs> just <laughs> telling me like, what if you had a room? And I'm like, uh, I just like ready. So um, trying to get as much done ahead of time is, would be ideal just for me. But one of the things about the way that I write is I really try I don't give people a script that needs that needs a lot of work. I don't give them sort right. of a oh here's the thing that's grist for the mill. I'm I give them something we can shoot, and then from yeah. there refinements can be made. But I really work hard to make it what I want it to be. You mentioned that you've started at least preliminarily looking at, at casting. Has has Abby been cast? Because there are already rumors out there, as you well know, about Shannon Barry, about Katie O'Brien. Is there any truth to those? Uh, no. no, no, no one has been cast. Okay. Have people hit you up for cameos as clickers, a la like a stormtroopers, like Daniel Craig as a stormtrooper kind of a deal? Well, we did have a great one in uh, season one. Um, Melanie Linsky's husband, uh, Jason Ritter, who's right, just like right. the most lovely guy in the world and is such a super fan. And he was like, can I please just be an infected? And I'm like, yeah, you want to, sorry, you want to work all night for like two weeks in a row running <laughs> and being in a makeup chair for four hours before you do it? Yes. And he did. <laughs> awesome. Um, we are, uh, we're always open. Um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I, that's the one that, um, and I keep talking about she said she said she would she would do it I think Phoebe as, as a clicker would be amazing I don't know if she's going to be willing to sit in the chair quite that long that is a intensive process well, well still one of the most glorious I, I volunteer my services one of the most glorious days in my life I was a I was a zombie killed by Bill Murray at the end of Zombieland 2 so I have experience Craig I can do this yeah no I mean if you want to sit there <laughs> I think, by the way, do you have Canadian citizenship? That would really help. I'll work on that. Let me get yeah. back to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you as much a fan of, of the second game as the first? Like, what, what do you love about the, the second game? Well, I am. Um, and I think the beauty of the second game is that it, it takes the question of the first game and pushes it even further, um, where you don't have to wonder um if someone's doing the right thing because you are asked to split your loyalties you know we don't like to do this um no one likes to do this we like to be either christian or muslim either democrat or republican either a yankee fan or a red sox fan this is what we like right. it's hard for us to organize our lives if we can't pick sides and then what we're doing here is saying we need you to not pick sides in fact, we're going to force you to not pick sides. That what that game did in that regard was was stunning. I thought and and important. It's important. Um, so I love the concept of that. I really do. Um, and there's a lot that I think that story proposes about the nature of justice that I would like to explore even more. And empathy. Um, so I, I thought I thought the game was was quite beautiful and um, and very adaptable. 
And when I say adaptable, I think sometimes people think that means just you just slide it over and you're done. Adaptable doesn't mean that. It means actually the opposite. It means there's, there's room. Yeah. places to to expand, to go deeper, to amend, to imagine. Um, and I'm so excited for those. Um, and the, you know, I've said this before, the the second game story is not containable in one season. So right. how we break that out and continue from there will be part of the interesting puzzle. Um, but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I couldn't be more excited to just live in that world more and, to again follow along what I think is this really beautiful underpinning of narrative, and uh, you know, it it is a controversial story for a lot of people, and all the good ones are. It feels like thanks to this adaptation and several others in recent years that we we finally shed the the old axiom of game adaptations just not working in TV and film, and that that's it feels like game ip is the new superhero ip um or finding i'm curious are you a knights of the old republic guy are you a star wars guy that's that's one that's always been talked about what do you think i played old coder as i called it um right. yeah sure um the it's an for, for, well to be fair and i always like to point this out there have been good adaptations of video games there are Every time someone says this, Arcane fans lose their shit, and rightfully so. Arcane's uh, great. I agree. Castlevania fans, yeah. as do Pikachu, uh, Detective Pikachu fans. Um, but in terms of like a live action uh, television series, um, or just, yeah, on live, live action kind of adaptation, I, we, uh, we're, we're definitely up there. And I got to tell you, I'm a little nervous because because um, we were working with, I think, what is in my opinion, right. the best story told in video games. And I think for others, certainly people would have to admit it's, it's at least in the top 10. Um, there are a lot of video games that are great because of the gameplay uh, and not necessarily, um, I think, ready for adaptation or ready for an adaptation that's going to work. So we look best possible outcome is that we're in for a lot of awesome adaptations. Worst possible outcome is there's going to be a wave of uh, bad adaptations. Look, it's really, especially in games where there's not either there's so much convoluted plot, you get buried under it or the main character is a faceless, voiceless cipher, or there's a lack of a relationship in the story that is important, or the gameplay itself is based on high fantasy or uh, or or high science fiction to the point where it's becomes a little bit disconnected, right, um, from reality and 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 comments about the human condition. These are the things that if I were advising other people, I would be saying, these are the things you have to be thinking about. And that doesn't mean that you can't make great high fantasy adaptations. You can. Some of the best adaptations are high fantasy and same for science fiction. But the adaptation process is tricky. And I think it's very tricky for video games. The one thing I think we have definitely shaken, I hope, is the scourge of video games being adapted by people that don't give a shit about the video game. I right. think that's over. 
And if right. it's not, then I don't know what's going on. Because if there's, only, if there's one thing I hope people can take away from what Neil and I did with The Last of Us is that you need to obsessively love the source material. You can't just go, oh, it's a IP. I, I hate IP. I IP is a term that only lawyers should use. I don't know why. I know. I no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> content and IP, two of yeah. our favorite, right? Right. You make so great like, content, Craig. Yeah. Beloved, <laughs> a beloved story with beloved characters. Yeah. That's what's important. So if people can love these things into existence, then I think there's every chance for success. You've done very well for HBO. HBO's done very well for you. It occurs to me there's some interesting, not going to call it IP, there's some interesting properties, some stories, some worlds. Mm. Okay. Are you going to throw your hat in the mix for Harry Potter? What's up? Any no. interest? No interest. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Uh, listen, Harry Potter, I love those movies. I read, I love the books. I love the movies. Um, I, you know, I... Stay out of the debate about the politics. I have, you know, a very, uh, without saying which family member, I have a very, very close family member who is trans, and I, you know, so I don't, I don't go too far down the line there. But um, when it comes to that particular endeavor, I just, I would never throw my hat in the ring because I'm doing the last of us. It's that's what I'm doing, um, right. and. I think maybe also I might be too old. I mean, I'm 52 years old. If somebody starts doing a seven season. Yeah, that's the next decade of your life. Yeah. Decade. Oh, no, 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 not decade. See, this is the challenge with that show is that these the shows, kids are going to age. They're going to, yeah. So how do you keep Harry yeah. being 29 in that last episode? That's an interesting challenge um, because it's the, the, what has happened to people wonder like what's going on with television like why does it take so damn long why does it take two years to give us eight episodes when it used to take 10 months to give us 22 episodes and the answer is visual effects that the more we use visual effects to flesh out worlds and make them spectacular the longer it takes there is a profound shortage of visual effects artists um the visual effects companies are overworked, overburdened. Uh, there is a company out there that keeps making a lot of stuff. I won't mention their name. They've been using a lot of visual effects. And, uh, and that has just, the pipeline has been clogged to the point where everything just takes yeah. so much longer to do. Um, so yeah, you would, I would think you would need to be a young woman or a young man to uh, take on that said, I listen. I, like I said, I I love those movies and I love those books. When those books would come out, I would read them uh, on in one in the day. Like they would arrive on my doorstep from Amazon because Amazon would have a deal where they would like get it to you on the same day it was in the bookshop, and and then I would just take it and go into my room and just say nobody talked to me today. I'm reading this Harry Potter book. <laughs> then I would read it in a day. I, I, and finally, I take it I know the answer because again, you, your your slate is pretty full with Last of Us for the time being. But your old buddy James Gunn, again in the family, does does going back to collaborating with James on a superhero film in that universe intrigue you in, on any level? Have you guys talked? No, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and no, no. I, I'm not. 
I, I made a movie that was sort of making fun of superheroes, and I made another movie that was sort of making fun of superheroes. I mean, lovingly fun. I mean, because they, I think it, I used to really enjoy those movies. I just think there's so many of them. And also the God's Honest Truth, I don't have the, um, I don't have the, the cred because look, I read a lot of comic books when I was a kid and I, I played the Marvel uh, RPG even as a kid. And, but I don't have the kind of cred of like, look, I am a fully absorbed guy who understands the myriad soap operatic connections between all the DC characters and between all the Marvel characters. And you have to just bring this enormous love to that or you're not going to make it. What I do have, for instance, is a love for The Last of Us. So I can pour myself heart and soul into that. And I have cred. Nobody can question my devotion or knowledge about that. Um, it's the same thing with Chernobyl. You know, like my feeling was, I'm not, if I write this, I need to end up being one of the world's foremost experts on Chernobyl. No joke. I mean, right, like I right. literally have to get to that point. Um, so no, I, I'm not, um, there's, no, I don't, I don't. Also, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I, I, I'm out of the movie business, basically. You know, I, I, I will work with certain directors when they call because I love them and because they are so brilliant, you know? So like if Denis Villeneuve calls, I'm like, absolutely. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm there for, you know, three, four weeks or a month or something like that to work on what you're working on. But yeah. um, but mostly I want to make my own things and I want to be in charge of my own things. And that's what HBO allows me to do. Did, did you just tell me you did a polish on Dune Part 2? Is that what you're telling me? I am a participating writer in Dune Part 2. That oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm not a, I, I will be in the, uh, I came long after. I, I, okay. Again, sort of like you come in, you do a yeah, little yeah. bit of, you leave. So now they have, it used to be that you couldn't even say that, but now they have this additional literary material thing at the end. I so see. yes, I am additionary literary, literary material. How excited should I be? I'm already very, very excited. Anytime Denis makes a movie, you should be excited. As far no, as of I'm course. Concerned. Yeah, he's the uh, best. The, the best. man yeah. is, is the, the, he is as kind as he is brilliant. He is a, he is a, uh, he's a rare one. He's just remarkable. Um, I've really enjoyed this man. And I like, we only dove into this singular piece of work and there's such an, a, another amazing, you know, career of work. I'd love to talk to you about at some point. I'm also, by the way, a big fan of the podcast, a script notes people should check out. Um, and yeah, good luck, man. I mean, look, you really, uh, it was a look. you, yes, you had the wind at your back with a lot of fans of this one, but at the same time, you well know the expectations going in and you should take a victory wrap, a lap or crawl or walk or something because, um season one's amazing and i can't oh, wait to see what you have in store for season two i appreciate it and i feel like you missed a calling as as a lawyer you you're you had excellent you really, you got me you got me close on a bunch of these things you really did i mean you really had you got me leaning all over the place and i i'm i'll tell you what i'm taking a victory lap by not okay not giving out too many headlines that's because you you're good at this that's I, all look i'm, ex I'm excited you, that next season's eight episodes right you said you mentioned that is that what you said it's not. Oh, it's not eight. <laughs> so we know no. it's not eight. Seven or nine. A, that was just an example. That was just oh, an example. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Craig Mazin, uh, thanks again for being exactly on the pod. Eight, that's my, that's the big news. Not exactly okay. Eight. Not exactly eight. There's our scintillating headline of the day. Uh, thanks again, man. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Appreciate it. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, <laughs> ha,